This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning in God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we thank you that we can be here today. We're thankful for your word. As the psalmist said, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is your very thinking, the scripture says. And so as we study your word, we learn to think as you think, and we learn the nature of reality, for it is grounded in your thought, and it has been brought forth by your word, and it is a reflection of who you are. And so, Father, as we study your word, we pray that this might illuminate our thinking in terms of our own spiritual life, that we might think in terms of uh, who we are and what you have accomplished in our lives and, and what the goal and destiny is that you have for us in our own spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A question that uh, we should ask ourselves at times is, you know, what motivates us? What keeps us going? What keeps us on track when things aren't going the way that we want them to go, when we come under those times of discouragement, we come under times of pressure in life and we face various adversities, and there's always that temptation to somehow uh, bail out in the Christian life, to somehow trust in something other than God's Word, other than in what the Lord has provided for us, to somehow, rather than trying to solve the problems and difficulties that we have in life by the uh, tools, the techniques, the spiritual skills that God has given us, we just try to do it on our own. We try to do it by something that keeps us in our comfort zone, something that keeps us, uh, gives us a sense of a immediate relief, rather than focusing on some sort of long-term consequence or long-term result. What is it that keeps us going in times of difficulty? What is it that keeps us going uh, when temptations are overpowering? What is it that really motivates us? And when we think about this whole doctrine about what the, what the Scripture says about motivation, it's always in relation to God's planned for us in the future. The focus is always on some future blessing, some future reward, some future expectation. And the more we come to understand what that reward is in the future or what those rewards are in the future, what God has planned for us in the future, the more real that future is to us, the more that impacts our present reality. So that, as I've said many times, we can live today in light of eternity, we live today, we make decisions today in light of God's future plan. The Bible has a lot to say about rewards 
for believers. Sometimes folks get the idea that rewards are somehow a contrast or are inconsistent with the whole principle of grace. But that would seem sort of odd if that were true because there are so much in the Scripture that talks about God's promise of specific rewards for believers, for those who are faithful, those who endure, those who uh, persevere. These rewards then are designed as an enhanced motivator for our present Christian life so that when things get rugged, we focus on the end game, the end result, and that in turn uh, strengthens us so that despite whatever present difficulties there may be, we are encouraged to move forward and to keep, uh, keep obedient with the, to the Lord. There are several words that are used in Scripture that focus on this doctrine of future rewards. We have the words related to inheritance and heirship. Uh, these are concepts that there is something that God has provided for us uh, in the future as a possession. The idea of inheritance focuses on a possession, something that is ours. And as we've studied in the past, there are two categories of inheritance, two categories of these future possessions. There are those that belong to every person because they are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and because they are in Christ. They are ours in him. And then there are additional rewards that are promised to those who pursue uh, spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. This is the distinction we also see in the uh, Gospels between uh, a disciple who is someone who is has a greater level of commitment towards the study of God's Word, being a student of what the Lord has to teach us in his word, and those that are simply believers, those who are uh, in a lesser sense, uh, they're saved, but they're not dedicated in terms of their, uh, their uh, studies of God's word. So we have the, this word group, inheritance, heirs. We talk about the share of our inheritance, which again focuses on Um, on inheritance last uh, Sunday morning when I spoke on Luke chapter 15 and how uh, we had these examples of lost things. You had the uh, lost sheep, you had the lost coin, and you had the lost uh, brother, the prodigal son, that uh, the issue with the prodigal son also has something to say about inheritance for the son Uh, In his rebellion, the younger son came to the father and said that he wanted uh, the share of his inheritance, and then he went and he just uh, 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 used it uh, for his own own pleasure, and he just spent it all and wasted himself, and he ends up uh, working for a, a Gentile, and he ends up working in a pig pen, and then he came to himself, and he goes back to his father. He is... He's a picture of those within Israel who had disregarded uh, the law of Moses and were living apart from the law and were living apart from what God had called them to be as a nation. On the other hand, we also see his older brother, who is representative of the mentality and the attitude, the self-righteous attitude of the Pharisees, who looked down upon those who had become disobedient 
uh, to the Mosaic law, and they would not extend uh, forgiveness in that direction. And so they had a, a, a uh, an arrogance about them and a self-righteousness that also did not express uh, the kind of attitude that God had called the nation Israel to. And so they, these two, in terms of the context of the passage, as I pointed out last time, represent the, two, the issues that Jesus was confronting in his, uh, in his confrontation with the Pharisees as they were accusing him of uh, being uh, antinomian because he associated with the, uh, uh, with the sinners and the, and the tax collectors. Now, we take that, as I pointed out last time, and we take that lesson and we apply it. We can apply the issue of forgiveness to church-age believers. Neither the younger son nor the older son represent church-age believers. They are representing in the context these two different groups within Israel. But we see by application, because the principle that Jesus is illustrating is the joy that God has over the disobedient child who returns in obedience and the joy that God has in his love for the individual and his uh, grace towards the individual to welcome them back into the fold. So uh, in in one sense, neither of these are representing... um, uh, church-age believers in a in a literal interpretation in terms of the immediate context, but the application in relationship to understanding God's joy at uh, forgiveness and welcoming back those who have been disobedient is applied to to church-age believer, and so that is uh, one example of this <clears throat> concept of inheritance and heirship because there is a loss. Uh, of that inheritance by the disobedient younger uh, younger brother. Other words that focus on our attention upon the future, uh, words directly related to rewards, such as uh, rewards, and then we have the judgment seat of Christ. And the judgment focuses a little bit more and, and on the positive. We always think of that word judgment as being something that is that is negative. But the word there that is used comes from a Greek word that has to do with evaluating that which is good. It's not an evaluation there to see what, where the failures have been. Remember, the failures are destroyed by, at the judgment seat of Christ, the, the imagery there of whatever we have built with our life, that it is uh, uh, exposed to the fire and the wood, hay, and straw, that which is produced by the sin nature is burned up. That is in terms of human good, not in terms of sin, but that which is, has no eternal value is destroyed. That's the picture there. It's not really talking about sin or human good. It's a picture of removing from, from visibility that which has no eternal uh, consequence. And so all that is left is that which has eternal value. All that remains is the gold, silver, and precious stones. The evaluation of the judgment seat of Christ isn't to point out where the failures have been. It's to reveal where the successes have been. So it's, uh, it's very positive, and that also uh, motivates us, knowing that there is a time of accountability. And then one other word that... <clears throat> that comes up in the New Testament that focuses us on the future is the word hope. 
And uh, unlike the way we often use the word hope in everyday language, where we often think of it as something that is just uh, wishful optimism, the Greek word for hope has the idea of a confident expectation, a certainty that something in the future is going to happen. We learn from examining how the word hope is used that hope is never related to anything bad. In the New Testament, hope is always related to some future blessing, to some future reward, to something that is good. A second thing that we see about hope is it's never uh, an uncertainty. It's never just sort of this idea of a wishful optimism that we sort of hope that tomorrow the weather will be good because we have certain things planned. Uh, that's never the idea. It's never uncertain. It's always a certainty. It's never this... Uh, idea that something may happen. It is always related to a future, a confidence in a future reality. And as such, hope, as we see in the scripture, whenever we run across that word, hope is always built on the foundation of faith, that there are certain things that we'll see that are similar to hope and faith. Faith is based on something that is unseen. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. We also see in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, that hope is also related to that which is not seen. So because of that, both hope and faith are virtues of the spiritual life, the Christian life, that are related to this time period because we do not see the Lord face to face. When we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, whether that occurs at the time of our death or at the time of the rapture, when we are face to face with the Lord, then faith is no longer operative because faith is based on that which is not seen. And so when we're face to face with the Lord, that's the end of faith. When we are face-to-face with the Lord, hope will be realized. That expectation will be before us. And so since hope is based on that which is not seen, when we are face-to-face with the Lord, the future reality will be present, it will be seen, then hope will no longer be a factor. And so when we think about these three virtues that are emphasized in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, verse 13, that uh, now faith, hope, and love endure or remain or abide, but the greatest of these is love. The reason the greatest of these is love is because hope and faith are also temporary. They will not function into eternity. Once we are face-to-face with the Lord, faith is becomes sight and hope becomes sight, and so faith and hope are no longer uh, relevant. Now, as I, we saw last time when we were in Colossians, so open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. It's been a month, actually, since we were in Colossians with the intervention of the uh, Chafer Conference and uh, my uh, illness a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's been four weeks since we were last here, so I'll take a little time to review things. I know that when I sat down to begin studying for this morning, I had to go back and listen to the last class so I could remember what in the world I had talked about and uh, where I stopped. And I figured if I needed to do that, you all probably needed to do that, uh, need a little review as well. 
So we are in this prayer section, this opening prayer that is typical of Paul in his epistles. And at least seven of his 13 epistles, he begins with a prayer. And I think it's really important, as I pointed out, to pay attention to these prayers and compare what Paul prays for with what we typically pray for and to think a little bit about the spiritual significance of what the priorities that Paul has in these prayers. What's he thankful for? What's he praying for? What is he asking God to do? And are these the kinds of things that we are thankful for in our prayers and the kinds of things that we are asking God for uh, when we come before his throne of grace with our petitions? That's not to say that this is the limit of those things, but this gives us a an idea of, of and a pattern for our own uh, praying. So just to review, we, uh, I've gone, gone through ch- uh, verse 4, rather, just to review these verses because this is all part of one thought. Uh, Paul says, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Now, we'll just stop there. Probably will not get beyond that. There's some real uh, gold in these verses that I want to continue to develop because we see mentioned in these three verses, as I pointed out the last time, these three virtues that are emphasized throughout Scripture, faith, hope, and love. And so as we look at this, I want to go back and just review a little bit about what I said the last time about faith. I don't believe we got into love. We certainly didn't get into hope and to see how these are connected. Before we do that, I want to give a little enhanced translation. This shows the relationship of these three verses together. The main thought, this is an enhanced translation, the main thought comes up in the first verse. We always uh, give thanks. The main idea in the opening verse is expressed by the main verb is we give thanks. And that's what Paul is talking about. So this whole section from three, verse 3 down to verse 8 is focusing on uh, Paul's expression of gratitude to God for what has happened among the lives of the people in the congregation at Colossae. Now, as we think through this, what you should be thinking about in terms of application is a question along the lines of, if Paul were writing to me, would Paul be, what would Paul be expressing thanks for? Would these same things be in evidence in his prayer of thanksgiving? So he says, we always give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. And then the first thing he says in relation to why he is praying is because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And I pointed out that this is not referring just to their justification faith at the time of their salvation, but it also refers to their ongoing faith and trust in Christ in terms of the what we call the faith rest drill, in terms of their ongoing trust in God in their spiritual growth. 
And then the second thing he says, and this is also in verse 3, is also because of your love for all the saints. So that because of verse 1 relates to the two things, because we heard of your faith and because we heard of your love for all the saints. And it's interesting how many times in Paul's opening prayers that he expresses his thankfulness to God for what, is, what God is doing in the lives of these believers for these two things, because of their faith, their ongoing trust in God, and trust in, what, in the Scriptures, and second, because of their love for all the saints. That's what Paul praises, because they are getting a reputation for the way they are uh, expressing their love uh, for all the saints. And so as we look at that, one of the questions that we should be thinking about in terms of our own lives is would Paul be thankful for West Houston Bible Church because of the way we are trusting God on a day-by-day basis and because of the way that God's love is expressed through us to all of the saints? So we think about that in terms of the corporate characteristic of a local church and also in terms of our own personal lives. Is this something that could be said about us, that in observing us that we have a reputation personally because of our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, our trust in Scripture and our application of the faith rest drill, and secondly because that through us God is expressing his love to all the saints. Just as a word of encouragement to everybody uh, in the congregation, and especially those who helped out during the Chafer Conference, one thing that I continuously hear year after year from uh, men who come to the conference, and I heard it again this year, is that they how much they enjoyed the conference, how much they enjoyed all of the uh, speakers, the presentations, but invariably they say, but what really sets this conference apart from all the other things we might go to, is that the folks at West Houston Bible Church are just so kind and gracious and helpful, and they just do so much for everybody that that is what really makes a a huge difference in terms of this this conference. And I think that's something that we can be uh, that we can be proud of. Something that we can recognize that there certainly is uh, in our lives as a congregation this expression of love for all the saints. That doesn't mean you should just rest on your laurels and say, okay, good, we, we made it that far, let's, let's relax. And uh, because th- then we're just going to fall. You know, pride, pride goes before a fall, so we need to be careful. But you need to be encouraged by the fact that, that this is recognized by, by many pastors and many of those who come, and I think that's something wonderful to be said about uh, any congregation. So we see that as... As Paul emphasizes this, he says that he's thankful for these two things, your faith in Christ Jesus, number one, and your love for all the saints. But then in the fourth verse, he's going to come, or fifth verse, he's going to come back and say, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Now, part of the question in terms of the grammar of the passage is just how that verse relates back to what he has said in verses 3 and 4. There are some that try to tie it all the way back to the main verb, uh, we give thanks to God because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. But that number, the first problem is the first uh, verse 3, is, and that verb is just too far away from this last clause. I think it's best to understand this this initial clause in verse 4 as being related to the what he just said in 
uh, verse 2, the love for all the saints. Why do they have this love for all the saints? Frankly, all the saints are not that lovable, and we all know that. You can probably don't do it, but you could probably look around the congregation here and point at least two or three people that you don't think are very lovable, and you really don't want to have to be put in on the spot where you have to show love for that particular individual. And that happens to all of us in all of our lives. There's always people that we have in our lives that, um, that we have a little more difficulty loving uh, than other people. But what gives us that ability to grow in that area, in the area of love for all the saints? And that is this motivation that comes from our understanding of the end game, of where God is taking us, what the future expectation is. It's that hope that is laid up for us in heaven. So it's important to identify as we go through these verses the emphasis on these three virtues, faith, love, and then hope, and then to under, make sure we understand what these ref, to what they refer and to understand their significance and their relationship to uh, one another. Last time I also focused uh, on prayer. There are different elements to prayer. There, we may have prayers that just incorporate any one of these elements, or we can have prayers that incorporate two or three or all of these elements. They include the element of confession of sin, if necessary, where we admit or acknowledge our sin, uh, sins to God the Father. It's not just a general admission of, Father, I have sinned, but it is a, an identification of an admission of what those sins are. It's not something general. Often you'll hear people who just make these uh, broad-based confessions, uh, Father, we're all sinners. Yes, that's true. But when the Scripture says if we confess our sins, it's indicating some, some specificity there. So we don't remember them all. We don't even know what they all are. So we bring to mind those things that we know are sins that we have recently committed. We confess those. We admit them uh, to God, and we're instantly forgiven and cleansed, not just of those, but of all unrighteousness. Now, the second category is a category of adoration or praise, focusing on who God is. Recently, somebody in the congregation observed to me that how much they um, focus on the essence of God, on his attributes when they're going through difficult times. And that's a great practice to have in prayer is to just think through each of the attributes of God, beginning with his sovereignty and his righteousness, his justice, his love, his eternal life, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, uh, his veracity and immutability, and just think through those and how that applies to your particular situation or circumstance. Uh, we always face disappointments and surprises in life, but they're not disappointments or surprises to God. God knows about every little detail that happens to us and has known about it uh, millions and millions of years ago. He's not surprised. He's made a provision for it. And so the issue for us is to get past our shock and surprise and to focus on the principles, the eternal truths, the promises that God has given us in his word so that we can maintain stability and that we can be an effective witness uh, to him by trusting in him in the midst of those uh, challenges. Uh, we express our thanks to God. This is what we're seeing modeled in these pr opening prayers of, of the Apostle Paul and what we should be, the primary things we should be thanking God for. 
And then we make various requests of God under the category of supplication. Supplication includes two aspects, intercession for others and petitions for ourselves, where we're asking God for certain specifics in terms of the lives of those around us, those we love, those we know, and petitions for specific issues in our own, uh, in our own lives. Now, as we look at the passage, uh, the passage before us, and we think about how this is expressed in terms of, of um, the cause for Paul's thankfulness, he says he's thankful because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. So just to uh, focus a couple, a little bit on his thankfulness, I've got about four scripture passages I'm putting up here, and I want to read through these. And just so we think about this as a pattern for gratitude. And Second Corinthians or Second Thessalonians. <clears throat> One three, which I think I have uh, put up here, duplicated here. We have, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Notice again that in this epistle, Paul emphasizes in his thankfulness the growth of their faith. We grow in our faith. We grow in our ability to trust God in the midst of difficult circumstances and to claim promises. And he is thankful because their faith is growing tremendously and also because their love for everyone abounds to one another. And so there is this increase in their love for one another. He says something similar in Ephesians 1.15. He says, Therefore also... I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And in Philemon, uh, personally, Paul is saying, I heard of your love, I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. So these two elements get emphasized uh, again and again. Now, last time I talked about faith a little bit. And faith is really the ability to trust God. Anybody can exercise belief. You came in, you sat down in your chair, you exercised a certain amount of faith. You believed that that chair would hold you. When you got up this morning and you went in to uh, plug in your coffee pot or to turn it on, you believed that it would come on and it would make your coffee or perhaps tea or whatever you had this morning. Sometimes we go in, as I did a couple of weeks ago, and you plug in the coffee pot and turn it on, nothing happens. See, your belief is not grounded in truth anymore. See, belief is always related to something that you think is true. I didn't say belief is always related to that which is true. That implies something objective. People believe many things to be true that, in fact, are not true. But the point that I am making is that belief and trust is always related to what the person thinks is true. Whatever it is you might believe, when you believe it, you're believing that it is true. Now, the issue on whether or not it is true is another issue. I'm just pointing out that belief, as the, the, the meaning of the word, is that it's always related to something that is believed to be true. You don't believe anything that you know to be false. 
Uh, some people do. That's, uh, that's just a matter of inconsistency. That's how a lot of people approach uh, religion. They know it's not true, but they're going to believe it anyway because somehow it gives them some uh, meaning in life, and without it they wouldn't have any meaning in life, so they're uh, believing something that isn't true. Eventually this shows up in their life because it has no real impact in their life. They just claim to uh, claim to believe it. So faith or belief is an act of trusting, a mental act of trusting, believing, or accepting accepting something uh, to be true. So faith is always related to some, can always be expressed, let's say, can always be expressed in terms of some proposition. This is where we get into something a little more abstract. In logic, the word uh, proposition is like a declarative sentence, if that makes sense to you from an English background. A declarative sentence is a statement that declares something to be, uh, to be true. It's like the indicative mood in the Greek. It's declaring something to be true. It may or may not be true, and but because it's a statement that something is a certain way, it can either be demonstrated to be true or demonstrated to be false. And in the technical language of logic, a proposition is a statement that can be either verified or falsified. It's either can be true, claimed uh, or proved or demonstrated to be true or it can be claimed or demonstrated to be false. So all faith in the Christian life is really related to some sort of truth claim that is expressed propositionally. Now, the reason I say that is because a lot of times when you read, especially in systematic theologies about the Bible, we'll say we believe in prop, that the Bible is propositional truth about God. See, none of us have seen God. None of us have seen Jesus Christ. There's not one person in this room who has ever seen Jesus Christ, at least I hope not. There's not one person in this room who has ever seen God. There's not one person in this room who has uh, ever seen Noah. There's not one person in this room who's ever seen Noah's Ark. There's not one person in this room who has ever seen Solomon's uh, temple. But we believe that to be true because the Bible says so, because we believe the Bible is the Word of God and that what it says is true, so we believe that to be true. Now, all of these different things that the Bible says are basically propositions. The Bible tells us that Jesus lived, that Jesus claimed to be God, uh, claimed to be the God-man, and that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Now, those are all statements that are either true or false. And when we believe them to be true, then if we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, then we are a Christian. We have believed a proposition about Jesus. Some people will say, well, you need to believe in Jesus. But you don't, we don't believe in Jesus directly because we haven't seen him. Ju- Judas saw Jesus directly, and he didn't believe in him. So that immediate apprehension, that immediate perception of Jesus is not necessary in order to have faith. Faith is believing something to be true about someone, and that proposition can be validated, can be verified, it can be proved to be true or false. And so we have evidence that supports the veracity of the Scripture that shows that the claims of Scripture, as far as we can demonstrate some things from archaeology, from history, and from uh, correlative sources, show that nothing has ever been demonstrated to be false about the Scriptures. Archaeology has never discovered anything 
that contradicts anything said in Scripture. There's no historical document that's ever been uncovered that contradicts uh, what is found in, in the Bible. And so we can, on the basis of what we know is has been validated or verified, we can extrapolate that to other things. But ultimately, we believe the Bible to be true because it bears its own internal authority as it comes from God. And there are those who choose to disbelieve the Bible simply because they have made a previous decision, or as we discovered on Thursday night, a new word, they've made an a priori or a prior decision to reject anything related to God, and so they're going to believe or they're going to disbelieve despite any evidences. So faith is something that is already related to some, always related to something that is true that can be expressed as a proposition. And there are two categories of faith I looked at. One is justifying faith, that we know that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, passages like Galatians 2.16, and then there's spiritual growth faith, such as is seen in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Uh, <clears throat> For we walk by faith and not by sight. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, as we receive Christ Jesus, that is by faith alone in Christ alone, we are to walk in him. That is, we walk by faith and not by sight. That doesn't mean that we don't do what the Scripture says to do, but we do what the Scripture says to do because we're trusting that it is true. Now, the second virtue that comes out of this passage is love. This always takes us back to passages in um, uh, in the Gospels, especially in the Upper Room Discourse. And in terms of love, Jesus redefines this in John 13, 34, and 35 and says a new commandment, that is one that was not stated this way before, it's a new, different kind of commandment, I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. And one of the ways that he just demonstrated that love was in the foot washing that occurred uh, at the uh, uh, Last Supper, the Passover meal that he celebrated with his disciples. And in washing their feet, he was teaching the principle of forgiveness, the, the need for forgiveness and cleansing to have fellowship with God, and also, by application, forgiveness of one another. And so love for one another is built upon uh, forgiveness of one another. You can't love someone if you're harboring uh, bitterness, anger, resentment uh, uh, against them. You have to forgive them in order to be able to demonstrate any kind of love for them. So Jesus has just demonstrated this. He goes to the cross, and on the cross he demonstrates his love for his enemies. For all mankind is at enmity with God and hostile to him, and yet even though we were hostile to him and enmity with him, God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is unconditional, unconditional love. And it is this kind of love that is to be the, the mark of the church age believer. This is what is to distinguish us from anything else. This is what identifies the true disciple, the one who is really a student of Jesus and growing. And this is what Jesus says in verse 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now this word love is a word that is notorious, notoriously difficult to 
um, to, to um, d- define, to give a clear definition. In fact, if you look it up in uh, Webster's Dictionary or the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll find a description rather than a definition. Now, a lot of people don't really understand the difference between a definition and a description. And it was interesting in the, uh, as we were getting ready for the uh, last, uh, the last uh, conference, one of the things that uh, I wanted all of the uh, presenters to do is to come up with key words, key terms that people needed to understand in terms of the spiritual life or sanctification so we could put together a glossary. And there were two or three of us uh, who've had a little experience writing definitions and writing glossary terms, and basically we were the ones who put that together ultimately because what I kept finding when I would ask uh, certain individuals, uh, most of them, to write a definition is that most of us don't have a lot of practice writing definitions, and that's one of the hardest things that you can do. This is no negative criticism. It takes a lot of work, and you usually have some editor who's slamming your head against the wall every time you make an attempt because you haven't dis- defined it. You've just described it. And so it's uh, it's a real uh, technique, and it's a real uh, art to define words. Try to define love without describing it. It's extremely difficult. I've been struggling with this for years, and I think that, that in terms of a basic definition, the best I've been able to come up with in terms of love is that love is seeking the best for the object of your love. Love is seeking the best for the object of your love. But there's a problem with that definition for, in terms of application is that it, it brings in this, this qualitative judgment of what the best is. See, when most people think of, I want the the best for you, they're defining the best for you in terms of what they want you to do for them. Right? You, in order to understand what the best is, you really have to have an external quality, an external absolute that regardless of culture, regardless of period of history, regardless of personal uh, favorites and in terms of personal uh, uh, preferences, this is appealing to something that is a, a universal, absolute truth. And so in order to have this real love, it depends upon a genuine integrity, a genuine integrity that is appealed to that goes above and beyond uh, experiential uh, preferences, which is usually how we define the best. I want the best for you, but what I define best is really what I think is best in my opinion. So you can't have the kind of love that the Scripture's talking about if you don't have this sort of external reference point which comes from the love of God. If we, The more we think about, meditate upon, contemplate, the love of God in its demonstration towards us at the cross and the demonstration of the gospel, the more we come to understand what love is. Now, we have a an immature concept of love when we're young. Uh, we can have a measure of love. Love is something that we, we as we go through life, we grow, we mature, we come to greater, uh, more complex understandings of what love is. Uh, love isn't a feeling. It may result in a feeling, but it isn't just a feeling. It's not a warm fuzzy. Uh, what we see in Scripture is that our love for God has, a, has an objective measurement, that if you love me, God says, you will keep my commandments. 
So love has an ethical element to it, an element of obedience. If you're, if you're disobedient to God, you don't love him. I don't care. God says, I don't care how you feel. If you're not obedient, if you don't, if the priorities in your life aren't the priorities in, that I want for your life, then you don't love me. If, uh, if you're not obedient to me, then to the degree that you're disobedient, to that degree you don't love me. You may have a immature type of love, but it's not a mature type of love. And so this kind of love that marks the believer is one that is uh, not something that is evident in a young young Christian's life. It just can't be because there's not enough knowledge, there's not enough um, a time to develop this kind of love. We get a description of it. Notice Scripture never really defines love either. We get examples. We get pictures of it, and we get a description of it in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 4 through 7, where Paul says, love suffers long. It's, it's patient. It, in, it puts up with things for a long time. It's not going to major on the things that are irritants. It focuses on the positive. It puts up with things for a long time. It's, it's, it's patient in that sense. It's kind. It's kind towards people who don't deserve kindness. It's kind towards people who we think we ought to, we're justified in being irritated with, angry with, and impatient with. Love is kind. Uh, love does not envy. It's not oriented towards jealousy or trying to gain something. These, these uh, next examples uh, uh, in terms of their, their negat- uh, the, the negative all relate to something related to self-absorption or arrogance. You can't be arrogant in love. Those are mutually exclusive concepts because love is basically based on humility. And we have to have, to the degree that we have genuine humility, to that degree we can love other people. But if we don't have genuine humility, if we're, if we're arrogant and we're self-absorbed, then we're focused on, you're focused on me and not on the other person. And love is always other-oriented and not me-oriented. So love doesn't envy. Envy is basically an expression of arrogance and self-absorption and what I deserve rather than what, what uh, you ought to be graciously given. Uh, love does not parade itself. That means love does not put itself out. It's not going to focus on itself or put a spotlight on itself. Uh, it's not puffed up. That means it's not boastful or arrogant. Uh, verse 5, love does not behave rudely. Now, there's one. That means that love is related to having good manners. Love is based on showing consideration for others, whether you think you should be considerate towards them or not. Love, sh- love is thinking about other people before it's thinking about what you want, what you would like, and what makes you comfortable. Uh, love does not seek its own. And again, it's not self-oriented. It's not self-absorbed. Uh, it's not provoked. See, when you're easily provoked and you can get irritated and you can get um, upset with other people and you get impatient with other people, then you're easily provoked. But when you truly love someone then and your focus is on them, then you don't get easily provoked. You're, you, you don't... Uh, lose your temper with them uh, easily. Love thinks no evil. 
In other words, it's positive as opposed to something that is negative. It's focusing on the best in the object of love rather than the failures or the negatives in the object of love. Uh, Verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity. I bet there's not one person here who hasn't had somebody who's done something to them that hurt you, and then several years later you hear of something that happened to them, and secretly you're just going, yeah, there is justice in God's universe. That's not love. No matter what they've done to us, that doesn't justify that kind of attitude. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Again, we have this word truth. We're going to get into this Thursday night some more in Romans chapter 1. We'll see it some more in Colossians 1. Truth in Scripture often comes, most frequently comes, with the article, which means there's this assumption in Scripture that there is one and only one true True truth. Pardon me if I'm redundant, but I'm trying to emphasize that. We live in a world today that thinks that everybody can have their own truth and live according to their own truth, and then everybody can be happy. I was watching something or had something on the news this morning uh, while I was uh, preparing breakfast, and uh, it was a reference to some event that had just happened, I think, at the University of Arizona, and they had a display out there with a... um, with a fence that was to represent the border fence. And uh, I, I just overheard a statement by a person that was being interviewed that, that they were, uh, this was a, a memorial for uh, border patrol officers who had lost their life in defense of the, of the border. And they were saying, well, one of the groups that, uh, uh, that they received opposition from was, um, was this group that belie- really believes that life would be better if we had no international borders at all which is uh, insanely silly. But when we, we, we think about what that's grounded on, it's grounded on this idea that there's no universal truth, that everybody can just believe their own thing and do their own thing, and every culture can just do their own thing, and everybody will just be happy. It's just rank, irrational idealism. So verse 7, three things, love bears all things. That means that when we love somebody, they're, all, they're going to fail us, they're going to disappoint us, they're going to irritate us, they're going to do things that we don't think is right. But rather than emphasizing those things and dwelling on those things, we're going to minimize them and not make issues out of those things. Believes all things. This is not just some sort of naive, I'm just going to believe whatever anybody says, but it is a focus on the impact of faith, and the object here is on Faith towards this uh, objective criteria that becomes the foundation for love. Same thing with hope. The hopes all things, the all things relates always to scriptural promises and scriptural truth and endures all things. So this gives us this description of, of love. Now what's going to be important here as we come back next time is that when we come to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, at the end of this chapter, the Apostle Paul says, and now, meaning now in this church age, what continues or what's a, what abides in contrast to what he had said earlier that the spiritual gift of prophecy and spiritual gift of, of knowledge and tongues would all uh, be abolished or die out. He says, but what continues is faith, hope, and love. 
these three, and the greatest of these is love. So this tells us that the greatest is love. But there's a relationship that we find here between love and hope. There's a relationship between love and hope, and it is hope that gives motivation to love, to go to that next level. Because love isn't easy. To fulfill the what Scripture says about loving one another is it goes against everything natural. It can't be accomplished on our own. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can produce this kind of love in us. We can't reach inside and pull it out. We have to do it. Uh, it can only be done as a result of walking by means of the Spirit. But the motivation comes by understanding what the end game is, and that is hope. So next time we'll come back and see the connection between hope. We'll come to understand what hope is and connect that back to love with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study about love this morning, to study about uh, the expectation that you have uh, in, for our spiritual life, that we would grow to maturity, and that maturity is demonstrated by our love for you and our love for one another. And that this indeed, this love for one another, is the mark uh, that distinguishes the believer who is advancing, the believer who is a genuine disciple, who is advancing in spiritual life. That this love is not something we can produce on our own. It's not something we can manufacture on our own, but it is produced by God the Holy Spirit. And that it is uh, this, this love that, is, that distinguishes believers and that we should have this as our reputation. Father, we also pray this morning for anyone here who may not be sure or certain of their eternal life or their eternal destiny, and that this is your opportunity to recognize that God expressed his love for you and that while you were still a sinner, while you were in rebellion against him, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and pay the penalty for your sins so that you could have eternal life. So the sin penalty is paid for. And the only issue now is your relationship to Christ, which you believe about him. And the scripture says, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then you have eternal life. This is a free gift given to you that can never, ever be removed. So we pray that uh, at this time that if any here have never put their trust in Christ, that they would do so. And at the instant you believe in Jesus, God the Father knows what you believe. And at that instant, he regenerates you and gives you eternal life, which can never be taken away. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied this morning from your word about love and about our need to grow to spiritual maturity, that your love would be manifested in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing hymn, number 415, He Giveth more grace. Number 415, and I'm going to ask Morgan Franklin if he would come up and dismiss us in closing prayer.